you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and our text will be within chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So hear God's word. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. In a New Horizons article from some years ago, uh, the title was Harold Camping's Kingdom Hall, uh, in that article, Jason Wallace, a pastor in the OPC, does a historical survey of people who thought they had figured out when Christ would return. In 1843, people sold their homes and possessions in in anticipation of the Lord's return at any moment. They were the followers of William Miller. Miller understood the 2,300 days of Daniel 8.14 to refer to the number of years until the return of Christ. Bible scholars as a whole had agreed that this prophecy was already fulfilled in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in 186 BC, but Miller insisted that Daniel's days were actually years. Adding 2,300 years to the time of Daniel's prophecy meant that the Lord was returning between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Of course, that time came and went without the return of Christ. Miller was devastated. One of his followers went back through the calculations and found out what was believed to be an error, and so a new date was set, October 22, 1844. When this new date also did not pan out, some of Miller's followers abandoned the movement, but others, too embarrassed to admit they were wrong, tried to find a new explanation. Ellen G. White eventually founded the Seventh-day Adventists, leading them to the conclusion that Jesus had returned invisibly in 1844 and that soon he would make his presence known visibly. Another splinter group, the Second Adventists, led by Jonas Swindoll, insisted that 1844 was the date that marked the beginning of the last generation. Swindoll thus taught that Jesus would return 30 years later in 1874. One of Swindle's followers was a former Presbyterian named Charles Taz Russell. You maybe recognize that name. When 1874 came and went, Russell concluded that 30 years was not long enough for a generation, 
So we added 70 years to 1844 and concluded that Jesus would return in 1914. This and other differences led him to split from the Second Adventists and to launch Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. This is the group that eventually became known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. The date of 1914 was changed to 1925, then to 1941, and then to 1975. And then we have, in 1992, Harold Camping. He published the book 1994, question mark, and like Miller, he rejected the historic understanding of Daniel 8. Like the Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses, he focused on the hidden meanings of texts, seeing pointers toward 1994 in the uh, number of swine drowned in the Sea of Galilee and in the number of servants in Abraham's house. Uh, Camping's book, 1994, was introduced with the following statement, very ironic statement. Um, no book ever written is as audacious or bold as one that claims to predict the timing of the end of the world, and that is precisely what this book presumes to do, end quote. Of course, the date of September 6, 1994 came and went, and for a while, Camping seemed to back away from his false prophecy, but now has decided that he was right all along. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults, he found it too embarrassing to admit he was wrong, and so he said that 1994 wasn't the wrong date, we just need to add seven years to it. And of course, the new date has also come and gone. People of God, scripture is clear. We cannot predict when the Lord will return. Mark 13, verse 33, records Jesus as saying, Be on guard, keep awake, or perhaps your translation says, Be alert, for you do not know when the time will come. Matthew 24, verse 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In that same chapter, verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Verse 42, therefore stay awake or keep watch, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Luke 12, verse 40, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then we have the same truth expressed here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, particularly in verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Later in verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So he says, You know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, but brothers... You're not in darkness that that day should surprise you like a thief. And granted, that sounds contradictory, but in fact, it is expected that the Lord's coming is going to bring a different experience for believers and unbelievers. And the goal of Paul's instruction here is to tell us that while there is a sense in which the Lord's coming will be for all like the coming of a thief in the night, yet for you, believer, the day of his coming should not surprise you like it will unbelievers. This is because, as a believer, you are to be prepared for the Lord's coming. You don't know when Jesus is coming back, but you know he is coming back. 
And that requires you to be thinking and living a certain way, a way that is consistent with not being surprised at his coming. And so we consider this text under the theme this morning, not surprised like a thief, based on the words there um, of the apostle, um, where he says there, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And uh, I'll develop that theme under the points. First of all, the meaning of the Lord's coming like a thief. We need to understand what that expression means, the significance of that expression. And then second, the unbeliever's surprise. And then thirdly, the believer's preparedness. So we begin with the meaning of the Lord's coming like a thief, where the apostle says in verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And before we get to that actual expression, notice that expression, the day of the Lord. Um, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. Paul is talking about here in the first part of chapter 5 are events associated with the day of the Lord, the name that scripture often gives to the day of Christ's coming. Day of the Lord is an expression used fairly often in the Old Testament, and there it refers to all of the events associated with the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. The day of the Lord is described as a day in which God will judge his enemies and a day in which God will save his church. In the Old Testament, it seems that the people of God looked forward to the day of the Lord as one great event, not understanding that there would be stages to the Lord's work. So it is that the Lord's first coming was a part of the day of the Lord. The disciples thought that Jesus was at his first coming. Remember, they thought he was going to establish his kingdom and that he was going to bring the end of the world. But Christ and scripture teach that the consummation of that kingdom awaits the Lord's second coming. Jesus said in Luke 21 that when certain events happen in the future, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And, of course, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. Of course, there's a sense in which Jesus has already brought his kingdom, or we might say he is bringing his kingdom. He's already ruling over his kingdom in the sense that he rules over all things. And yet there's a kingdom work that remains for Christ to complete, and that's a part of the day of the Lord. That is when this completion will take place, when this kingdom will be established in its final complete form. And it's the completion of the Lord's kingdom that is the focus, the purpose of the Lord's second coming. And so it is that in verse 2, Paul means by the coming of the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's coming in the future he then says, will be like the coming of a thief in the night. The most obvious and general meaning of this illustration is that the coming of the Lord will be sudden, it will be startling. The idea being you never know when a thief is going to strike. His coming is a surprise. He doesn't send a warning ahead of time and say, at such and such a time, I'm going to be at your house and I'm going to take all of your possessions. Of course not. And in a similar way, the exact day of the Lord will come unannounced. Coming like a thief in the night is an illustration how for believer and unbeliever alike, no one is going to be able to predict the exact time of the Lord's coming. That's the most obvious and general meaning of this illustration. 
And this idea of the Lord's coming being like the coming of a thief, it's not something new for the Thessalonians. Paul here is reminding them of truths that they already know, he says, of things that they, of which they are already fully aware. For he had already instructed them, apparently, as to the nature of the Lord's coming. We also notice that the opening words of chapter 5 are reminiscent of the Lord's own words to his disciples at the time of his ascension. Words that we would expect the Thessalonians to, to know. Um, Acts 1.7, the Lord there said, It is not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so Paul begins chapter 5 now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers. You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware, as he goes on to explain about the day of the Lord. And yet, for some reason, Paul felt the need to give the Thessalonians this reminder. We, we surmise that they were becoming overly curious about when the Lord would return. We know that from chapter 4 that the Thessalonians were uh, certainly had on their mind the return of the Lord. They weren't sure what would happen at Christ's coming to those who had already died. The Thessalonians tended to think that those who had died would be at a disadvantage to those who were living, who were here on earth at the time of the Lord's coming. It's only natural that these Thessalonians would want to be those who were alive. Don't we all? Wouldn't it be great if we were the ones who were alive at the Lord's coming and didn't have to go through death? And uh, it's only logical then to wonder, well, is there a way to know when the Lord's going to return? Is he, is he going to come during our lifetime? And the bottom line is that that's what they wanted to know. They wanted to know when Jesus' coming would be. And again, I would argue, don't we all? Uh, wouldn't it be great if we could know that? But chapter 5 is Paul's reminder to them of the truth regarding the Lord's coming. It's actually done in a way that has a touch of irony to it because he is essentially telling them, you know perfectly well that no one can know the time of Christ's coming. You know this. You know that no one can know. Um, then there's also a meaning of the Lord's coming being like a thief that pertains uniquely to unbelievers. A thief comes to steal and to destroy. And for unbelievers, the day of the Lord will be a day of judgment in which all that they have in this life is taken from them. A thief comes right to strip the homeowner of his precious possessions, and so the Lord will strip unbelievers of all that is precious to them that belongs to this life. There's also the element of surprise that uniquely belongs to the unbeliever. The coming of a thief is a surprise that's not expected. But is the coming of the Lord not expected uh, by us believers? Yeah, it is expected, right? Um, in fact, Paul says the day should not surprise you believers. But as we're thinking about unbelievers, we need to understand that that implies it's going to surprise unbelievers. The day of Christ's coming for them will be a surprise. And so the coming of the Lord like a thief means that we can't know, none of us can know, not even us, not even believers, none of us can know when he will come. But for some, it means his coming will catch them off guard. And it will be a surprise. And it's clearly the Holy Spirit's intention in this passage 
that we notice this contrast being made by the apostle between believers and unbelievers in how we live our lives in this interim between Christ's first and second comings. The unbeliever will be surprised at the Lord's coming. And this is not surprising when we understand the relationship of the unbeliever to Christ. But you believers, on the other hand, should not be surprised. And you won't be surprised to the degree that you are prepared for the Lord's coming. But for a moment, let's focus on the unbeliever's surprise. The unbeliever remains unprepared for the Lord's coming. We are to, re- we are to be prepared, but the unbeliever remains unprepared. And so the day of the Lord will surprise the unbeliever like a thief in the night. Let's take to heart what Paul says in these verses about unbelievers and what it means to be surprised because of a lack of preparedness. And then we will turn to how we as believers must live in a prepared way in the light of Christ's coming. As I said a moment ago, the illustration of the thief has a particular meaning that Paul uniquely applies to unbelievers. It The illustration describes how many people will be caught unprepared by the Lord's coming. They will then experience the unexpected judgment of being stripped of all that is valuable to them. Verse 3 follows right upon verse 2 as an explanation of what is meant by the Lord's coming as a thief in the night. The apostle says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. See, it's the unbeliever who refuses to reckon with reality, who refuses to believe that the Lord will come in judgment. And so he doesn't prepare himself for the Lord's coming. Unbelievers assure themselves that everything is fine. Things are fine for me now. Things are fine for me with regard to the future. If you notice how unbelievers leave God out of their lives and what do they do? They spend their time, their energy pursuing and maintaining and enjoying earthly prosperity. If you notice their reckless disregard for the future, how they fail to prepare for life after death. As far as they are concerned, those who speak of a coming day of judgment are are crazy. Um, those of us who would speak of this, this day of judgment are, are duped by religious nonsense. We're, we're people filled with negativity. They refuse to reckon with the idea that one day God is going to call sinners to account, that he is one day going to call them to account. And this attitude is behind Paul's description of them saying there's peace and security. They've convinced themselves that there's nothing that's going to disturb their happiness the happiness that's defined according to their godless life of materialism and indulgence in sinful pleasures. Or perhaps they, they think somewhat about religion and they think about their works. They, they figure they have enough good works to earn peace and security with God. So there's no concern, even if it enters into their mind that, okay, maybe perhaps there's coming a judgment day, or maybe they even say there is going to come a judgment day, but they immediately put it out of mind as of no concern because of their good works that they believe, falsely believe, but believe will earn them, have earned them peace and security. Comes to mind as the Old Testament prophets who warned about those who cried, peace, peace, when there was no peace. The world continues to cultivate what is only false assurance about the future. 
And so what follows is predictable, where God says in verse 3 that those who say there's peace and security, these are people who are not trusting Christ, these are people who are putting their trust in the things of this world, he says they will not escape the sudden destruction of Christ's, of Christ's judgments. Verse 9 says that God has not destined us believers to wrath, and the implication is that wrath is the destiny for unbelievers. Like labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman, their judgment will be intense and it will be inevitable. Just as a pregnant woman must go through labor pains to deliver her baby, unrepentant sinners will face the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be painful for unforgiven sinners to face the sudden destruction that is inevitable for those who think that there is peace and security be found in anything apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is foolishness to be caught unprepared for God's judgment. And though the folly of unbelievers is probably apparent, it should be readily apparent to you. It should not surprise you that unbelievers give no thought to the Lord's return. Um, After all, as Paul reminds us, they're spiritually in darkness. He, He says they're spiritually asleep. Paul refers to unbelievers indirectly in this way in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers. A statement that implies that those who are not believers are in darkness. Verse 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, which imply that those who do not belong to the, the body of believers are of the night and of darkness. And this is referring to spiritual and moral darkness. Darkness is associated in Scripture with death, with judgment, with imprisonment, with evil, with all of, all of the very worst things. It represents ignorance. Those who are spiritually in darkness do not understand. They do not accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't, do not understand and accept the reality that Christ is coming and that they will be held accountable for their sins. Those who are of the darkness spiritually are also morally in darkness. They live lives of sin with impunity. They live lives of evil because they have no loving concern for what pleases God. Maybe they have some kind of concern for what pleases God, again, to get back to this idea of people trying to earn their own salvation. But there's no loving concern. There's no desire to please God out of of love, but rather out of personal selfish concern. Maybe have I done enough to earn favor with God? That's, That's far different than uh, pleasing God out of love. Paul alternates in and out notice of symbolism and earthly realities. In verse 7, he speaks of those who belong to the spiritual realm of darkness, and he refers to those who are sleeping spiritually, but yet they carry out their deeds in literal darkness. Striking, isn't it, how the greatest portion of evil that is done is under the, it's done under the cloak of literal darkness. Robberies, murders, drug dealing, prostitution, etc. Paul refers in verse 7 to the particular sin of drunkenness. He says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. And sleep naturally relates to the night and to, the, and to darkness. And, of course, physical sleep is not evil. Um, here, sleep includes the idea of being asleep spiritually. Paul tells... Um, as as believers in verse 6, to not sleep as others do. He's not saying 
don't put your head down on your pillow at night and sleep. He's talking spiritually here. The others are unbelievers who are asleep toward God. They pay no attention to the things that he says. No attention is paid to his warnings, to his moral guidelines. They ignore the the warnings of coming judgment. They couldn't care less about how God wants them to live. They are asleep toward God. It follows then that these are people who are not sober. They are not watchful. They do not have lives characterized by faith, love, and the hope of salvation. Notice verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The world is not sober in a couple of ways. I mean, the world is not sober in a physical sense by their obsession with alcohol and drugs. But this is only one example. They are not sober when spiritually they are not thinking clearly. When you're drunk, you do not have clear judgment. When you're drunk, you put yourself in danger. Unbelievers are spiritually drunk. They are not sober when they make it their goal to pursue a lifestyle that is going to end in wrathful judgment. There's there's no desire on their part to exercise self-control in obedience to God. Self-control is a part of being sober. They give no thought to the needs of their souls. They're not thinking clearly. They're not thinking soberly. They are not on guard spiritually against sin and coming judgment. And so there's no faith in Christ. There's no love for Christ as Savior. There's no hope of a future salvation. And there's no concern for any of this, you see, because their minds are darkened. They are asleep. They are spiritually drunk. What Paul is describing is how from many different angles, The unbeliever is unprepared for the Lord's coming. And so it is that when the Lord does come, and he will come, the unbeliever is going to find that he is the object of God's wrathful judgment. Paul puts it this way, like labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. So let's turn now to the believer's preparedness. We see by way of contrast that you believer in the way of your being prepared, will find great joy on the day of the Lord's coming. Notice the gospel of verses 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we should live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night will surprise and will terrify the unbeliever. For the rest of us who do have faith in Christ, who know his love, who have our hope in him, the coming of the Lord should not catch us off guard and will be, in fact, a day of rejoicing. For you as a believer, the day of the Lord will not be a day of wrath, the apostle says. He's referring now to the the church, to believers. He's not destined us, saying us believers, you belong, those of us who belong to Christ, he says, um, for, for us, the, this day will not be a day of wrath, but a day of salvation. This is because Christ has died for us. Notice verses 9 and 10 it says there, uh, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is one of the places in scripture where we are told explicitly Christ died for us 
He died for us. This means his death was an atoning death. It was a substitutionary death offered in our place. The implication is we deserve to die for our sins. But Christ took that punishment upon himself for us in our place. The atoning death of Christ is the basis of our salvation and hope for the future because Christ died for us. We will not have to suffer God's wrath. But to the contrary, God promises us an inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. Because of Christ's death, we will go to live with him. We will live together with him in heaven forever. And you can know Christ has died for you and that you belong to the people of God if you trust in him and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Meanwhile, even for us as believers, we don't know when the day of the Lord will come. We can never expect to know the date. And uh, when the Lord said that we, will, we can't know the day or the hour, we must not, like Harold Camping, think, well, but we can know the month and the year. That's literally what he, he said. No, the idea is when the Lord says we can't know the day or the hour, he means we can't know when he's coming. But we can and we must expect him to come. It's exactly because we don't know the when of his coming that we need this reminder to be awake and to be sober and in this way to be ready for him. See, you ought not to be caught unprepared. You ought not to be surprised like the world will be at the Lord's coming. It should be noted that there are different, different levels of preparedness among believers. And ultimately, all believers are prepared in some sense. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, all who do that, all who love God, who, who look to God to give them the hope of heaven as a gift of grace, all on the basis of, of Christ's work, all of these, all such believers will find the day of Christ's coming to be a day of joy, a day of salvation. And yet there are going to be believers who are so much like the world in, in their thinking and in their way of life, who are, who are right now living for self rather than Christ like they ought. And the Lord's coming, I believe, to them is going to be a tremendous shock because they're not going to be thinking of him. They're not going to be prepared. They're going to be surprised. And to the degree that you are prepared for the Lord's coming, the coming of the Lord will not be a surprise that catches you off guard. And so it is that the Lord here calls you to be prepared, even to be growing in your preparedness, which means living contrary to the ways of a world which ignores Christ's coming. You are called here to live as children of light, as children of the day, that you are to not be asleep, but you are to be awake and sober. And twice in these verses, you are called to be sober. Verse 6, so then let us not be asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be gleaned from the idea of what it means to be sober. It means to have presence of mind. It means to have clear judgment. Think in contrast to the non-sober drunk who doesn't know up from down. Being sober means you have clear judgment. Your mind Sober Christian has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Through that work, you know God as Lord. You know that you are a sinner. You, you know Christ as Savior through his death, burial, and resurrection. You have been given a mind to understand that you need to receive Christ by faith, and you have done so. 
And you know that through Christ there is the hope of salvation. And so you are children of light. Your minds have been enlightened. You are children of the day, not of the night or of darkness. You are not asleep. You understand what is going on because Christ has given you a new mind. And yet there's more to being sober. It means to be self-controlled where you're not overreacting to things. Unlike the drunk, think of the drunk who can't control his actions, who reacts inappropriately to what's going on. No sober Christian, you flee from sins that belong to darkness. You recognize danger, the dangers of sin, and you react appropriately. Unlike the drunk who either doesn't even see the danger he's in or who can't get himself out of it, like the drunk driver who may be driving home and he may realize, I don't know what I'm doing here. He's having trouble driving safely, but he cannot make himself stay in his lane. Being sober is explained very practically by Paul as putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice the wording. He says, but since we belong to the day, this is verse 8, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The breastplate and the helmet are the pieces of armor that protect the most critical parts of the body, right? The head and the heart. Because the Holy Spirit has enlightened your mind and heart, you have faith. Or you know yourself to be a sinner who needs Christ and you trust Christ and you believe that his death was, as the apostle says here, for you, given to pay the penalty of your sin. And because you are no longer spiritually asleep, you love God, which means that you long for Christ's coming. And out of love, you live for him and you want to please him. And the helmet of salvation means that you look forward to the future. Hope always has the idea of you're looking forward to something coming, and hope in the, in the Bible is about uh, the, uh, future realities that are coming, not things that we hope will happen, but things that we know will happen, but they're in the future. And when you have this helmet of the hope of salvation, you're looking forward to the future, knowing that Christ is going to come, and knowing that his coming will bring the completion of your salvation in all aspects. Are you prepared for Christ's coming? There is an individual duty here. There's also a corporate duty. Notice at the end, encourage one another, he says there, and build one another up just as you are doing. He's not coming to them hoping to to come across as, as super critical. They're in many ways doing the right things. He wants to encourage them to keep doing what they're doing. But there is this this corporate aspect of encouraging one another and building one another up in these things of which we have been talking about this morning. Uh, We are to be helping one another to live daily out of the consciousness that Christ is coming soon. Do not be asleep toward God and his word and, and the warnings of his word. Pay attention to what he is telling you this morning and every time you open his word. Especially do not be asleep about the Lord's coming. He is coming. And on that day, all of your thoughts, all of your deeds, all of your words will be exposed. Now, if you're trusting in Christ, it's going to be a day of salvation. Christ will on that day publicly declare you to be justified in his sight. Of course, on the basis of his saving work that you are trusting in. 
You'll also be fully sanctified in your heart so that you will no longer sin. And even though justification is through Christ's blood received by faith entirely apart from works, your desire right now ought to be that at the Lord's coming, he will find you having sought to live a sober life of obedience and gratitude. While you'll never be perfect in this life, it is a worthy goal and, and it's a required goal that you would pursue holiness to the best of your ability so that on the day of the Lord's coming, there will be many, many good works that point to the work of God's grace in your life. Not that there's uh, any salvation that will be based upon those works. This needs to be very clear, but works are expected as evidence of faith. And we ought to want those works. We ought to want God to be glorified through our lives, through our good works. Do you long to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or are you content to be a Christian who sleeps most of your life away? As a child of God, a child of the light, you are called to live an awake, sober life, a life of faith, a life of love, a life that is governed by this hope of salvation. Live a life of faith where every day you recognize your need for Christ. Every day you should be repenting of your sins and receiving Christ's forgiveness. Every day you should be reminding yourself of the grace that God would send his son to die for you. And as you daily recall that grace, your love for God will grow. Flowing from that love will be a life of obedience. Every day meditate on the hope that is yours in Christ. Meditate on the reality of heaven. Think about how, how life with Christ in heaven is going to be so much greater, so much more fulfilling than anything of this life. Heaven is our home. And knowing Christ is what life is all about, faith, love, and the hope of salvation, these things that the apostle here emphasizes, these are the things that must be cultivated in our lives that we would stand out from the world as people of light, as people of the day. And living every day for Christ out of thankfulness for his grace, longing to be with him, that's key to being prepared for Christ's coming. See, there's no reason why the day of the Lord should surprise you like the coming of a thief. Don't expect to know when the Lord will return, but do live in expectation that he is coming. And help encourage one another, build one another up spiritually. You are fellow sojourners. You are fellow sojourners waiting for Christ, waiting for him together. Let us help one another in this. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Lord, encourage our own hearts. Build us up, we pray, in our faith. And may we be in encouragement and, and edification to those around us. Lord, may we be those who live as those who are awake, as those who are sober, as we look forward to the coming of Christ. May we not fear the future. May we, may we each one know fully our situation with you. Uh, may, we, may we know, Lord, each one where we stand. And uh, may everyone here, I pray, be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to him, trusting in his death in our place, that we may know that that day will be a day of salvation. And uh, Lord, we do pray that... Uh, 
Lord, you might use us uh, to even lead many others to, to know you as Savior, that that day will not be a day of wrath, not be a day in which everything precious is stolen and, and taken away. But Lord, we pray that through the work of your Spirit, there would be many more who come to see the great life that is in Christ and, and the future of hope that awaits us. So use us, Lord, and uh, we pray that we would not be caught up with the wind of the Lord's coming, that we would be content with, uh, with the fact that we don't know these things, but we do know that you are coming, and uh, we pray that we would react accordingly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.